from Our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church on Bennett Avenue in the Heights of New York City, welcome to In What Artworks On Air, where we shine a light on the writers, filmmakers, musicians, theater makers, and artists of all sorts who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. I'm Aaron Sims. And I'm Jonathan Bell. And this is Live and Local. It's our podcast dedicated to celebrating the musicians of Upper Manhattan. We talk about their music and, of course, get to listen to their perform live. Who are our guests today, Jonathan? Aaron, today Live and Local welcomes pianist Candace Chen and violinist Nicholas Pepone, the Alighieri duo. Nicholas was inspired to take up the violin when, as a child actor in Los Angeles, he portrayed a musical prodigy. He's now a sought-after soloist, chamber musician, orchestral player, and teacher in New York City, who has performed with members of the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, the New York Philharmonic, the Vienna Piano Trio, and the Zuckerman Chamber Players, to name only a few. Pianist Candace Chen is a graduate of the Juilliard School, where she studied with Jonathan Feldman and Margot Garrett. Specializing in chamber music, her performances with Alighieri, Duo, and Trio Portinari, a piano trio, have taken her across the U.S., Canada, and Sweden. She's taught music in public schools in Westfield and Queens and held faculty positions at the Usedon Center of Creative and Performing Arts and the Point Counterpoint Chamber Music Festival. Together, Candace and Nicholas not only perform as the Alighieri duo, they also make up a lovely marriage duo offstage. We couldn't be happier to have them with us today. Here they are, Alighieri duo. Thank you. 
that was just delightful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Could you tell us a bit about the selections you just played? The first piece was Sonatensatz or Scherzo by Johannes Brahms. It's actually the third movement of what is known as the FAE Sonata. This was a piece that Brahms and some of his composer friends, including Robert Schumann, each contributed to writing a single movement of the sonata, and then they presented the whole thing together as a gift to the famous violinist Joseph Joachim, who was a major mover and shaker in Vienna at that time. And this, of the piece, we still have the FAE sonata, but Brahms's effort in that third movement has stood the test of time as the most famous and has been played ever uh, since then in uh, violin and piano recitals. The second piece is Fritz Kreisler's Tambourine Chinois. We love playing Fritz Kreisler because if you've ever seen us around the neighborhood, we have a big fluffy chow chow, and his name is Fritz because we've named him after Kreisler. We're not those people at all. We're totally those people. Um, But 
Tambourine Chinois, in particular, was inspired by Chrysler's travels to San Francisco. So he went and he checked out the Chinese theater, and it was such a wonderful new experience. It just inspired him to write this lovely character piece. It's a really interesting mix of Chrysler's elegant Viennese musical training and his really aristocratic violin playing style. And he mixed that with his inspirations that he found here in the U.S. after he came to the U.S. and things like finding a Chinatown. And so it has this really interesting sound to it that is kind of really hard to place, but is uniquely Fritz Chrysler in his life experience. Well, thank you. A beautiful playing, extraordinary performance. The word unity comes to mind. I mean, you guys are truly a unified force. You know, I can't say that that's something that comes through for me often when I hear collaborations, especially actually duos. So, you know, both of you really complement each other so well. And, uh, I mean this only in, I don't think there is anything other than the complimentary sense, but there's an old school quality to your playing, to your your sound as a violinist. Sounds very golden era-ish in the way your long lines and your tone, really beautiful. Candice, I would also like you, if you don't mind, to talk a little bit about what it means to be a collaborative pianist, a chamber pianist, the training involved in that, why even great soloists may not be the best accompanists or chamber musicians, and and the specific requirements and training that goes into being an expert in that sense. I think I can kind of touch on two of those angles here. Being a collaborative pianist means that you are well-studied in not only just being able to play the piano, but you have an understanding of the instruments you're working with or the singers you're working with. So that ranges to, well, everything. You can't just like skip something. So you have to have a knowledge of language. You have to have a knowledge of how a string instrument works because the way each composer is interpreted as then slightly different depending on the instrument or the player. My job as a collaborative pianist is to then respond to that as quickly as possible. So one has to be social, one has to be versatile and flexible. What is great about our partnership is that those things sometimes don't need to apply because we can work things out. Between Nicholas and I, we come to a unified decision. With some colleagues, you may be like, okay, well, I will graciously defer to you because this is your thing and that's your job. But we use how well we know each other to push each other. So if we don't like something, you can very openly say, I don't like that. Or that's an awful choice. Why did you do that? And then we'll have an open and honest conversation about it and push each other to a new level. And to your point, I think... In recent times, I would say the last half of the 20th century and until now, the sonata repertoire, the violin and piano, was mostly played by two very famous soloists. But in many ways, we go back, as you were saying, referencing into a golden era, and we treat the duo as a chamber group. And in that sense, so I really appreciate your observation there because the unity that we approach it is the same that now you would expect in a string quartet or a piano trio. And we don't see any reason, especially since we have the advantage of living together, we don't see any reason to not bring that level of chamber music unity and a unified chamber group to the duo. And so it brings something new. It brings the snappy element to this repertoire that we're not used to hearing live in the same way anymore. And I really appreciate you hearing the sound because I really, really think that as string players in the string world, we need to get back 
to what made these instruments so popular in that golden era, that ability to sing and express a whole world's worth of meaning in just a simple scale. To have a unique sound and to think about the sound and the beauty of the sound you create in a way not just is it accurate or precise, but is it always expressive? Does your sound always contain a world? And that's something I think is a unifying factor when it comes to the making music part and the personal life, because we both bring to the table an immense care and an immense desire for the same musical, um, what's the word? Values. Values. Ha! Well, there's a real uncanny anticipation you have for each other, just in terms of the phrasing and so forth. One kind of follow-up inquiry. You know, when you've played a, even if it's sort of a war horse for the 87th time or something, and even as a soloist, you can struggle to keep things fresh, which I think is very central, though, to delivering satisfying performances, how to recreate pieces as if it's sort of the first time a little, it's, it has an exploratory feel to it. Is there something about being with someone that can help that? Because you're feeding off something like the other person may do something just slightly different that they don't, you're not used to them. And then right there, it kind of freshens it up in a way where you didn't have to supply it. Your partner did. Oh, absolutely. And I think we're exceptionally sensitive to how we're always developing and changing as musicians. So the way we play any of these pieces today is nowhere near what it was like even a year ago or even a few months before that. Because as we're always developing, since we are such in tune with each other, we even hear each other's practicing. We hear in the apartment when we start a piece new and it sounds terrible. And then you hear the process, the process of building something up like every artist has to do, you know, starting with the basic technique. Is it in tune, out of tune, is the bow straight, you know, for the strings and getting all the way up to a sophisticated interpretation. And so that is always fresh since we are kind of hearing our, our each other, guiding each other through the process. It's a matter of motivation too. If one of us makes something better, you don't want to be the jerk who's just keeping it the same. So I, I know there's a little bit of a competitive element, at least on my end. Steps and, your game up. Yeah. And I think, again, we're back to the values that, you know, even when we teach, we want to be able to preach and perform the same thing that we teach. And here, the idea that you never stop growing and the idea that this thing called music is so much bigger than you and you want to continuously dig for more and strive for more, that's a constant in our lives. And we value that as teachers and artists. Candace Nicholas, like many working musicians, you went online when live gigs became impossible. And while for various reasons, not everyone has applauded live stream performances, uh, you have used the medium to find an audience. I want to reference your in the spotlight violin and piano from stage to screen performance you did. Is there a secret to putting on a successful live stream musical performance? Verizon Fios? The biggest secret is a very fast upload speed. That's really crucial. When, when COVID hit, I actually spent like a whole month researching how to put on a stable, decent quality live stream with the one good quality mic. Interjection, I'm super proud of this because 
between the two of us, I was more known as the technology person, but he's really far and like beyond overtaken me in that. And I'm really, really like impressed. I would be going down to the Staples on Broadway and like buying a little new converter, see if they had it in stock or a really long ethernet cord cable to connect to the router to bring to the laptop in the studio. So yes, I had to do a lot of research and looking at internet tech blogs about this stuff and learning to use OBS Studio, open source and coding software, all that. So yes, I think there was that. You can't be afraid to learn how to do it, for one. And then two, it was the atmosphere, I think, of New York, what is already here in the performing arts community. The wonderful organization, Group Muse, which I will reference them here, it's important. They were originally founded out of New York and Brooklyn, and they now have chapters all over the world. And they were originally a house concert organization that connected hosts uh, they wanted a house concert in their home to musicians, freelance musicians in, in your area. They immediately ran with the situation, thought creatively, and transformed to a live stream platform very quickly. And so our younger generation of musicians in New York, being familiar with this, immediately jumped on this, us included. And what was wonderful is they've been able to create an audience base and curate an audience base, as well as the audience we've brought in, into this community of people who are enthusiastically supporting artists during this time and are very willing to pay for content online. We run into this major problem, even the highest level arts organizations, where people expect to just play a video on YouTube and it's free. And they're like, well, why should I pay for something on the internet? Well, you pay because now we're presenting you a concert that is just the same as if you paid for it at Carnegie Hall or at Weill Recital Hall. You're getting that same thing. And so it's really important that we keep this economy alive. So there's now this community online of people who are bringing that live audience thing to respond to this era and this time. So it's important to just move fast. And live streaming is different than just streaming. Live streaming, we're actually saying this happens in real time, which poses different challenges than streaming something. Live streaming has this entirely different set of risks to them. Oh, but absolutely. Also, the upload speed, the actual sound quality, everything happening on not a delay, particularly when you're working together in concert. Haha, <laughs> not pun not intended, but right, exactly. Uh, but I'll take it for a thousand, Alex. Um, you know, it is truly digital alchemy. Oh, absolutely. And the great advantage to the audience is that you get the same dynamic energy that you get from a real life performance. We're just using the technology at our disposal today to be able to bring that to you in basically a COVID safe way. But that is hugely different than a studio produced and edited album, which you can stream on Spotify or whatever. That's a CD. That is different altogether than paying for a live performance to be coming into your home that is happening right then and now and has that energy and spark. And I think that is what people will pay for, that live experience. Yeah, I think so. And when you are doing a live stream and advertising a live stream, I think the advertising is the hardest part. But that stage to screen program that you just mentioned, we've done variations on that so much during this time. Because what we did is try to find what is our strength? What is our message? What is the music that summarizes who we are as people? and use that to draw in our audience. It's not like other artists aren't doing live streaming, they are. But I think we've also come up with a unique combination that is the truest to us and gives the audience a real-time connection with us. Speaking of connections, it's important to talk about the industry in general as musicians. Here you are out there 
literally hoofing it, busking online, if you will. <laughs> so it's hardly seen like a fair question, but given the state of the performing arts over the past year, let me ask it anyway. You talked about like you know these larger organizations who are trying different things. Things aren't working out well for them. They have a lot of overhead that small organizations and musicians themselves don't have. So there's been a lot of talk about collective bargaining negotiations between unions, the AFFM, which is the American Federation of Musicians, and other unions are bargaining with the larger presenters of classical music in order to sustain these institutions like the Philharmonic and the Met. This usually translates into reduction of number of musicians who are contracted for certain events, pay cuts, contributions to health and pension being reduced. Many musicians rely on these institutions for their livelihood, so it's very difficult. Yet small groups, independent musicians like yourself, have pivoted to take up the do-it-yourself approach or through smaller or like group views, uh, and they've shown great resilience. So given this, COVID doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. What does the future hold for you both in your plans in the immediate future? And perhaps if you're willing to look into your crystal balls, the future of classical music as we know it. For me, I think the answer is diversification. For a very long time, the pinnacle of success in classical music was intrinsically tied to the institution. For pianists, we don't have things like orchestra jobs. So the conservatory job, the university job, it was kind of getting to the point where it was a one, single path. But what we've discovered during this time is that diversification allowed us to be financially stable. We teach, we perform, we're releasing content, both streamed and live streamed. And just having all those resources makes it so much more stable as a living and makes you well-rounded as a person and an artist. And it keeps the music making honest, which I feel like audiences are going to respond to that. The consumer responds to that. And part of the staleness and the, you know, the hooks into the institution is partially because there is a certain kind of person that institutions push. So by us being compelling to the audience, by holding true to our values, by being diverse and complex human beings and artists, we're bringing the thing that's new. We're bringing the future of classical music. I do hope, and her point is important, that I think the key largely to these larger organizations surviving and being relevant is to not cut their way to success, but to create their way to success. And exactly kind of the mindset we have is we're going to have to adapt and modernize. And a dynamic, energetic, relevant, both in a way of delivering the art, but also interpreting and performing the art is going to be really crucial. What we have found through our teaching from outreach in public schools to private teaching is that classical music in and of itself is not only popular with old people. It is not hard to listen to. It is not something you have to learn a lot about in order to understand. It is immediately and viscerally incredibly impactful and grabs your attention. And I've seen this with kindergartners who have never heard a violin or a piano in their life. And they hear us and they're, what is that? Immediately compelled. So it's about all of us, I think, getting back to that origin. What makes us love this music so passionately in the first place? And making sure that that kind of music making and that approach to our art 
that viscerally impactful art uh, performance and a kind of art music making that grabs the audience and says, you need this and you love this and doesn't let them go. That's our key to success. And then once that is your foundation of this is how we're going to present this art form is there, then it doesn't really matter whatever the delivery vehicle is, whatever the platform is, you're doing both justice to the art and to the organization presenting it. Well, that's a powerful and eloquent statement on behalf of your mission. Now, here's a question that pertains to the more immediate future. Uh, what are you going to play for us next? So we have a very popular little thing. This is the love theme from Cinema Paradiso by Ennio Morricone, who tragically and unfortunately died during, was it this summer? A few months ago, yeah, this summer. Ago. But not from COVID, fortunately, <laughs> just from a just, very long, full life. Yeah, okay. There is no actual piano and violin reduction out there. So you probably have heard it online on YouTube with like violin and orchestra and all that. So one of my COVID tasks, one of the little inspirations was for me to arrange a piano part. So that was fun. And I now have a version that has like print and then like little cutout pieces. It was like arts nice. and crafts of things that I put in. So this arrangement is our own in some way. Yes, Candice made her own reduction of the orchestral score. And then the second piece you'll hear is the last movement of Strauss's violin sonata in E flat major. We jokingly call it the Strauss piano concerto with violin accompaniment. <laughs> Not a reduction. Not a reduction by any means. It is definitely one of my favorite things to play. You'll see why. Once again, Allegheny Duo.
That was amazing. Where can our listeners go to follow up on your shows and anything you've recorded? So we have three websites. The first is www.alagiriduo.com. Mostly you're going to find stuff about both of us and like kind of the short versions of everything. And then my website is nicholaspapone.com. She has pianocandice.com. Which also talk about our private teaching studios here in the neighborhood in Upper Manhattan Inwood. So you're welcome to contact us if you're hearing this and anyone out there you're looking for violin or piano lessons. Please, you're welcome. Um, the whole the whole community, uh, many cases, has come into our studio at some point or the other <laughs> over the years. And then we also have Instagram and Facebook profiles too, which are professional and open to the public. Listeners, you'll be able to find the link on our Inwood Artworks website with their podcast. Thank you again to both of you, Candace and Nicholas, the Allegory Duo, for joining us today on this live and local episode of Inwood Artworks On Air. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thing. It's where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all kinds who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thanks as well to our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church here for hosting us and to HeightsHeights.com for local uptown promotional support. Be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. You can also support On Air and all our programming by making a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc slash donate. Inwood Artworks On Air is made possible funding from the NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail A. Brewer and the NISCA Electronic Media Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and also the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Aaron Sims. I'm Jonathan Bell. For Inwood Artworks On Air. 